Well, if you have your Bibles with you, again, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 21 today. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 580. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying uh, through the book of Psalms for the summer. And we've come to Psalm 21. And I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning. Look both ways. Psalm 21. And this is what the Word of God says. O Lord, in your strength the King rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. And though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Every parent and grandparent knows the importance of teaching their children and their grandchildren to look both ways before they cross the street. For if you fail to check both directions, an accident is bound to happen. Likewise, as we study the Psalms, especially those written by David, we must learn to study them both in their original historical context as well as in their climactic fulfillment in Jesus Christ. For without studying both contexts, we are bound to misinterpret the psalm. And nowhere is this more true than in the study of Psalm 20 and Psalm 21. Both of these psalms form a pair. Psalm 20 is a prayer before the battle, and Psalm 21 is praise after the battle. Psalm 20 is a prayer for God's blessings on King David as he prepares to lead his army into battle on the day of trouble, while Psalm 21 is a song of celebration and thanksgiving, a national anthem that looks backward and gives thanks to God for answering his people's prayers and granting David victory over his enemies, as well as looking forward as David anticipates the future victories that yet await him. Psalm 21 is a psalm that looks both ways. 
in this royal psalm written by David to the choir master for use in public worship, David not only writes about his kingship, he writes about a greater king and his kingship. John Calvin says of this psalm, Above all, it was the design of the Holy Spirit here to direct the minds of the faithful to Christ. What is here stated was only fully accomplished in Christ, who was appointed by the Heavenly Father to be king over us. So Psalm 21 not only looks backward to David's victories, it looks forward to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return in majesty and power, when he will defeat and vanquish all of his foes once and for all, when he will cause every knee to bow before him, and when he will cause every tongue to confess that he is Lord. And so as we study this psalm and as we look both ways, we should hear Jesus Christ, our King, in the words of Psalm 21. For Christ rejoices in the salvation that God the Father gave him. And in this psalm, David teaches us to rejoice in the God of our salvation as we anticipate the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 6, the rejoicing of the king. And these first six verses of this psalm correspond to the first five verses of Psalm 20, where the people of God prayed for their king. And in these first six verses, David expresses thanksgiving to God for answering his prayers and the prayers of his people and for God granting him victory over his enemies. And in verse number one, he rejoices in the strength of God. And he writes, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. David begins this psalm by rejoicing in the strength of Yahweh and by greatly exalting in Yahweh's salvation. And if you'll recall in Psalm 20, David and his people prayed and they asked God for victory. But they prayed that God would not give them victory through chariots and horses. They prayed that God would give them victory through the power and the might of his name. And in this verse, we see that God has answered David's prayers. That the Lord indeed has delivered David from the hands of his enemies. And in a later psalm, David expressed this same joy as he reflected on how Yahweh strengthened him and how Yahweh helped him. Listen to Psalm 28, verses 7 and 8, two very powerful verses penned by David. He says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts. Listen, and I am helped. And my heart exalts. And with my song, I give thanks to him. And then notice what he says next in verse 8. In verse 7, it's a testimony of how he has trusted. And how he has exalted in Yahweh. And how Yahweh has helped him as he's trusted in him. But now listen to the change of language in verse 8. 
And the Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. He's speaking corporately now. And so what is true of David can be true of you and me, friends, when we trust with all of our heart in the Lord and we lean on Him and we depend upon Him. As David says, we are helped. And so in verse 1 of Psalm 21, David helpfully reminds us that whatever or whomever our heart trusts, listen carefully, that will our heart also exalt and worship. So that means this morning, friends, if you trust in your strength instead of God's strength, you will worship yourself. And if you trust in money, you will worship money. And if you trust in the government, you will worship the government instead of your true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so David reminds us to consider whose strength we're rejoicing in this morning. And that's the question I ask of you. Whose strength are you rejoicing in? Whose strength is helping you? You'll also notice in verse number two that he rejoices in the supply of God. He says, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. In verse 2, David echoes Psalm 20, verses 4 and 5, and the people's prayer for Yahweh to grant David his heart's desire and to fulfill all of his plans. And both Psalm 20, verses 4 and 5, and Psalm 21, verse 2, are an echo of Psalm 37, verse 4, where David says that the key to the Lord giving us the desires of our hearts and fulfilling our plans is found in the degree in which we delight ourselves in the Lord. And so David is teaching us that as he delighted in the Lord, and as he worshipped the Lord, he took the desires of his heart, and he turned them into the request of his lips, and God answered those prayers and delivered him. And I want you to listen to the very next verse in Psalm 37, verse 5 that David pins after he says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. Commit your way to the Lord. Commit your life to the Lord. Commit your direction and your purpose to the Lord. Trust in Him. And he will act on your behalf. It is a picture of what it means to delight in the Lord. And in that delight of the Lord, to have the Lord transform the desires and the plans and the purposes of your heart to his desires and his plans and his purposes for your heart. And then you commit those things to him and you trust in him. And he will go before you and act on your behalf. And David is rejoicing in the fact that as he delighted in his Lord, and as he found strength in him, and as he trusted in him, and gave his plans and his purposes to him, 
God acted on his behalf. God supplied his every single need. Friends, David found to be true what the Apostle Paul found to be true. That the supply of God is sufficient for our every need. And this is what he wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will act on your behalf. He will supply your needs. And I wonder today, if you truly believe that, I wonder today if you truly believe that the supply of God for your life is perfect and sufficient in its timing and in its purpose. Or are you so consumed by anxiety and fear and worry that it has robbed you of the peace that God can give you in the midst of the battle? David rejoiced in the strength of God. He rejoiced in the supply of God in verses 3 and 4. He rejoiced in the security of God. Look at what he writes. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Now you'll notice in verses 3 and 4 that David uses language that the Bible uses to describe the character and the nature of God. And he uses this language describing a king and his army returning victorious from battle. And he describes how Yahweh has publicly honored David by pouring out his goodness and meeting him in verse 3 with rich blessings and setting a crown of fine gold representing the value and the permanence of his kingdom in verse 3 and by preserving his life on the battlefield by giving him life and length of days forever and ever in verse 4. But now I want you to look at this language carefully in verses 3 and 4. I've told you at the outset that this psalm is pointing to a greater king than David. It is pointing to Jesus. And in verses 3 and 4, what we have here, friends, is resurrection language. Yes, David experienced the public display of Yahweh's honor and divine approval. But these verses, verses 3 and 4, they find their roots in the promise that Yahweh made to David concerning David's greater son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, the Bible gives us this promise. And the Bible says, "...in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." And look at your Bible. Look at Psalm 21 and verse 4. And what does David say? Length of days, how? Forever and ever. It is the language of the promise of God to his king about his greater son, Jesus Christ. And the word forever in this context, it is a word of security. 
John Calvin says of this verse, the course of David's life was too short to be compared to this length of days, which is said to consist of many ages. Therefore, David, without a doubt, is thinking of the eternal king, Jesus Christ. And friends, I want to remind you this morning what you may have forgotten today, that there is security in the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus said himself in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, that his sheep hear his voice and he knows them and they follow him and he gives them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of his hand. Did you hear that? No one will be able to snatch them out of his hand. If you are in Christ today, you couldn't be more secure than you are in him. Nothing in this world can snatch you from his hand. No plague, no problem, no difficulty, no stress, no anxiety, no worry is greater than the hand of Christ which is holding on to you. And I'll remind you this morning, it's not you holding on to him. It is him grasping and holding on to you. That keeps you secure. Your hand isn't strong enough to keep you secure. Your strength is in the Lord and in his hand, not yours. And in Christ, you are secure. And I'll remind you this morning, Christian. Do you realize that because of the work of Christ on the cross for you, that God the Father meets you with the same blessings that David describes in verses 3 and 4? And it's the same blessings that God the Father meets with His Son over His victory on the cross. For Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so I wonder this morning if you've forgotten these truths. I wonder if you've forgotten just how secure you are in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've forgotten just how blessed you are by God in Christ. Blessed with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's not that you need to be blessed, friends. You are blessed if you are in Christ. Get your theology right. You are blessed. Blessed to the uttermost. And the question is, do you recognize it and do you thank God for it? There is security in God, and David found that to be true. In verse 5, he rejoices in the salvation of God. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor, and majesty you bestow upon him. In this verse, the king is greatly glorified through the salvation that Yahweh has given to him. He uses language once again that describes God to paint a picture of the grandeur of the salvation that Yahweh gives. Look at the language he uses in verse 5. Glory, it speaks of heaviness and weightiness and importance. Splendor speaks of honor. Majesty, it speaks of dignity. God is greatly glorified through the salvation that he gives. And the king is greatly glorified through the salvation that God gives. In this language, glory and splendor and majesty, it's used in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, to describe God. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor. 
and majesty and glory. And once again in verse 5, we see how this language must point beyond David to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon described this verse this way. The whole weight of sin was laid upon Christ. So it is right that the full measure of glory of bearing it away should be laid upon the same beloved person. A glory commensurate with his shame he must and he will receive, for he well has earned it. Listen, it is not possible to honor Jesus too much. And that's what you're seeing in verse 5, friends. You're seeing God the Father honor and glorify His Son because of His obedience. And I want to remind you this morning, friends, that God the Father has so honored His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the salvation that He brings with such dignity and weightiness. Listen, you cannot avoid Christ. Oh, the world is trying to avoid Christ. The world is trying to push Christ into irrelevance. But I want to remind you this morning what the world has forgotten and what the world will never remind you. I want to remind you of reality this morning. And here's the reality. Jesus Christ is and always will be the center of the universe. There is no avoiding him. There is no hiding from him. Listen to me. Every single person must deal with Christ. God has designed it that way. So you cannot avoid him and you cannot ignore him. And so my question for you this morning is simply this. Why wouldn't you turn to Christ Believe on Him, trust in Him today, and have the hope and the assurance of heaven and reconciliation with the God who created you and the forgiveness of sins before it's too late. Why would you wait? Because I promise you there's coming a day when you will remember this worship service and you will remember this sermon and you will remember this pastor who stood before you and proclaimed boldly and unapologetically your need for Christ and how you can't ignore Him or avoid Him and you must deal with Him. And on that day, you will wish that you had listened. And so David, he rejoices in the salvation of God. And then in verse 6, he rejoices in the satisfaction of God. For he says, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Notice what David is doing in verse 6. He's reflecting on how God has showered him with eternal blessings. And the language doesn't explicitly state it. But the language of the verse also emphasizes the fact that God has showered all of these blessings on his king. So that the king in turn would take those blessings and shower them upon the people that he leads. And you'll notice in verse 6 that Yahweh has not only blessed David, Yahweh has satisfied David. And he satisfied David with his presence. And this verse has its foundations in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, God commanded the priests to bless the people of Israel, and he told them to bless Israel, listen carefully, 
with his presence. The very blessing that David describes in verse number 6. And in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27, this is what the Bible says. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. And you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. They were blessed with the presence of God. And just as God blessed Israel with his presence, so too in verse number 6, he blesses David with the joy and the gladness of his presence. One commentator had an insightful statement to make about the joy and the gladness of the presence of God. And I want you to listen carefully to what he said. God's presence does not seem like a great blessing to those who do not love him. It is like receiving fruitcake at Christmas. Can I save this to re-gift next year? That's what you do, don't you? They love the things God gives, but not God himself. They want God to provide for them, to forgive them, to protect their children, to heal them, and to give them countless other blessings, but they do not want God themselves. So they are not excited at the thought of being in God's presence. They wouldn't be happy in heaven because being with God is the joy of heaven. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Have you ever met somebody like that? Are you somebody like that? Oh, you want the blessings of God. You just don't want the blesser. You want the answered prayers of God, from God, but you just want to do your own thing. Oh, you're satisfied with what he gives you, but you're not satisfied with him. I wonder if this describes you this morning. Do you find yourself loving God's blessings more than God himself? If you woke up tomorrow and all you had was the certainty of the presence of God in your life, would it be enough? Would it satisfy you? Or are you using the blessings that God has given you to just be satisfied in those blessings without him? Friends, the joy of heaven is the presence of God. It's in that presence that we will delight and find joy and happiness and gladness forevermore. There is a weightiness to it. There is a substance to it. There is a satisfaction to it that nothing in this world can give. And if you're not careful, you'll use God instead of worship Him. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these first six verses, friends. Do you see it? There can be no other answer or picture to these first six verses than the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the beginning of his high priestly prayer in John 17, before he went to the cross, he prayed the same themes that are in these verses. And I want you to hear them as I show you how Christ is in this passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. David rejoiced in God. And the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoiced in God the Father as well. Well, we not only see the rejoicing of the king, in verse number 7, we see the resilience of the king. He says, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. What I want you to understand this morning is that verse 7 is the central focal point of this psalm. Everything before it moves toward it, and everything after verse 7 moves forward and flows from it. And this verse is an echo of Psalm 20, verse 7. And here, the psalmist once again declares his trust in the Lord. And you'll notice the language that he uses for trust is present tense. It means that the king is trusting even now after he's already been given the victory. And more specifically, notice what verse 7 says. That David is trusting in the steadfast love of the Most High God. And when he speaks of steadfast love, he is speaking of God's covenantal, eternal, and unchangeable love. And David is saying that he has confidence that no matter what enemy he faces, God will maintain his steadfast love towards him. And this confidence in the love of God will bring him stability. Look at how he ends the verse. He shall not be moved. He described it this way in Psalm 62 and verse 2. God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And David is testifying that he was resilient because his relationship with Yahweh was secure. Ross in his commentary says, Those who put their trust in the Lord like the king find security. Nothing is able to move or shake the saints because of the power of the Lord manifested through his loyal love. It is the steadfast love of God that keeps us anchored in a crazy world, friends. And I chose resilience for the heading of this point on purpose. It is a word that has become increasingly popular in the publishing industry, especially among works for pastoral ministry. I could take you to my library right now and give you four books on pastoral ministry that all have the word resilience in their title. Recent books. It's an important word. It, it's a word that is relevant for the day that we live in. To be resilient. To persevere. To remain faithful and steadfast. And David was resilient in all of the ups and downs of his life and everything that he faced because he had confidence in the unchanging unwavering love of God that he had set upon his servant and it seems that all of us are trying to find the secret to keep persevering but David found it and he declares it in this verse do you see it it's trusting in the Lord and his steadfast love for his people Jesus modeled this same truth that David did for in first Peter chapter 2 and verse 23 
Peter says this of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued trusting himself to his Father. And friend, I would say to you this morning, out of complete love in my heart and my soul and my spirit for you as your pastor, that if you continually find yourself shaken, if you continually find yourself distressed, if you continually find yourself wobbling and wavering, could it be that you're trusting in something or someone other than the steadfast love of the Most High God? David found it solid footing. Jesus found it solid footing. Could it be that you would find it solid footing for your life and your soul? Well, we not only see the rejoicing of the king and the resilience of the king, in verses 8 to 12, we see the reckoning of the king. Now, this second major section of Psalm 21 corresponds to the second major section of Psalm 20. And all of the language in these verses is future tense. It is pointing historically to David's ongoing success as a king and a warrior under God's strength and power and all of the future victories that God will grant him in the battle. But it also points beyond David to David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be victorious over the whole world. Notice in verses 8 through 12, the word you and your. I did accounting of those words. Because you always look for words that are repeated when you're studying the Bible. And the word you and your is used 10 times in verses 8 to 12. And you'll also see another repeated word. It's the word will. It is speaking of certainty. Now I want to warn you. That some of you are going to struggle with the verses that we're going to read quickly in a moment together. Because these verses are violent. They're aggressive. And there'll be something inside of you that'll become uneasy and you'll say, this is not the way God works. This can't be how God operates. And I want to remind you this morning that both the love of God and the wrath of God are a part of God's full and final salvation. And we've seen in the first half of the psalm the love of God. And now we're seeing in the second half of the psalm the wrath of God. And they both form together. This is how God deals with the world, both in love and in wrath. And so notice, first of all, in verse 8, that David and his people believed that by the power of Yahweh's right hand, Yahweh would capture all of his enemies. And look at how he describes his enemies. Those who hate him. Yahweh will capture all of his enemies. The ones who hate him. And you'll notice that in verse 8, the phrase find out is repeated twice. It literally translates reach. Uh, Yahweh will reach out and grab a hold of his enemies. Every single one of them who hates him. 
And it's a reminder, it's a sobering reminder this morning that no one is beyond the reach of God. That God sees everyone, God knows everyone, and God can reach and touch every single person. And it is also a sobering reminder that if you are against the Lord Jesus Christ, if you set yourself up in opposition against him and his kingdom, you are not safe. You cannot hide from this God. Then in verse 9, David and his people believed that when Yahweh appeared, he would consume his enemies like a blazing oven, and he would swallow them up in his wrath, and he would consume them. Look at the language with the fire of his judgment. Total devastation. Total conquering. And notice how it's described in his wrath. In his wrath. Moreover, in verse 10, Yahweh's enemies will be so utterly consumed, their descendants will be destroyed from the earth. Their descendants. It means the generations coming behind them, Yahweh will wipe all of them out in His perfect and just judgment. It's what Psalm 34, 16 says and what many other places in the Bible say. This is Psalm 34, 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Did you hear that? What will God do in His final judgment against His enemies? He will remove their very memory from the earth. That is how devastating this judgment will be. He will remove the wicked completely and finally from the earth. He will stop all of their deeds. And listen, no trace of the king's enemies will remain anywhere, not in any of his descendants. And then furthermore, in verses 11 and 12, Though David's enemies plan evil and devise mischief against him, they will not succeed. Yahweh will put them to flight. He will aim his sovereign bows at their faces. It literally means that in their terror, they will turn their backs and run in retreat. Now, Derek Kidner said of verses 8 to 12 that the scale of these events could only be calling for the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, friends, these verses promise future victory for David. But these verses are really pointing beyond David to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul describes these verses, verses 8 through 12 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. That is how Jesus Christ is going to return, friends. It is not hyperbole. It is not exaggeration. This is the truth of the authority of the word of God. Jesus Christ is coming back, and he is coming back just the way this psalm describes it. In all of his glory, his splendor, his majesty, and in his judgmental wrath. 
That is how he is coming. And he will come and deal decisively and powerfully with all of his foes. And the evil agenda of this world and of the nations, as Psalm 2 says, that comes together and sets itself up against God's anointed and against his king, Jesus Christ will crush under his feet. It will be apocalyptic. It will be devastating. And I want to remind you this morning that this day of reckoning will be a day of rejoicing for those who love Jesus and long for his glorious appearing. But it will be a day of eternal judgment and wrath for those who hate him and oppose him. And I wonder today, if that day of reckoning were, happen, were to happen today, what you would experience, friend? Would you experience rejoicing at the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ coming back? Or would you experience dread and terror and fear over the fiery judgment that awaits you? Oh, it's not too late to turn to Christ. It's not too late to find your rescue and your refuge and your hope in Him. For there is a day of reckoning coming. Well, we see the rejoicing of the King, the resilience of the King, the reckoning of the King. And finally, in verse 13, we see the resound of the King. And David ends the psalm, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Notice that Psalm 21 ends the way it begins, with the sound of rejoicing, the sound of celebration, and the sound of exaltation to the God who brings salvation to his King. And in this final verse, David cries out once more for God to rise up and to show his glory and to assert his strength in battle against all of the king's enemies. David understood the reality of Psalm 20 verse 7 and Psalm 21 verse 7 that the battle belongs to the Lord and that victory is not based on man's strength but on the mighty right hand and power of Yahweh. And that as Yahweh continued to wield this power and this strength on behalf of his king and his people, he would sing and praise and worship and exult in Yahweh's power. Spurgeon said, for a time, the saints may mourn, but the glorious appearance of their divine helper awakens their joy he wrought our deliverance alone, and he alone shall have the praise. Can't you relate to that quote, friends? It's why I put it in there. Don't you some days wake up, feel like you're in mourning? Like you're living in a dream or a nightmare or chaos? And you mourn and you're dejected and you walk around and you don't know why and it's the weight of everything that is pressing in around us. But the promise of the glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ dispels all of that and replaces it with joy and gladness. And this is the glimpse that David had. David had seen and experienced the power of God. He had seen the strength of Yahweh on behalf of his king. And David was content to trust in that and rest in that and worship God and sing his praise rather than mourn. And so I say to you this morning, First Baptist Church, as we see the crumbling foundations all around us 
And as we anticipate Christ's final victory, we should be like David. We should be like David in this psalm, and we should raise our voices, and we should cry out, Yahweh, rise up in your strength. Be exalted among the nations. Be exalted among your people. For you are a God of power. You're a God of glory. You're a God of splendor. You're a God of majesty. And nothing compares to you. And you are worthy of our song and our praise. And we, your people, trust in you, not the chariots and horses of this world. John Phillips said, Jesus is the only person who can be trusted with such power. And he will wield it in such a way that the sobbing planet will be transformed at last into the singing planet. Don't you love that? The sobbing planet will be transformed at last into the singing planet. He says, there, says David, send that to the chief musician. Let's sing about that. And that's how he ends. Well, friends, Psalm 21 teaches us to look both ways. For if we only see this psalm in its historical context of the life of David, do you see If you only see it in David's life, you will rob yourself of the joy and hope it gives you in Christ. For in this psalm, David teaches us to rejoice in the God of our salvation as we anticipate the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, if you're going to make it in this life, you got to look both ways. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for this psalm. And thank you for your word. And Lord, we, your people, 